close to 20 years ago, I sat in a park near my place in the Bay Area, talking with Dave and JJ Heller about their hopes and their dreams for music. Having spent the first few years of their musical career between Arizona and California, they were right on the edge of a move to Nashville, Tennessee. See, they wanted to take a full big league swing at their work, and they believed that that move would do it. Which is to say they were doing what I regularly tell my clients to do, especially when they're younger and less attached. They were betting on themselves. And it has actually been a sincere joy to watch them keep doing that for years and now for decades. Because among the many rewards and awards available to professional artists, the joy of having stayed, the joy of enduring, and the joy of getting to do what is in our hearts to do years after we decided to do it is among the richest and most valuable. This is my conversation with JJ and Dave Heller. Check it out. Are you norm- do you multitask in general? Like, do you have to have, are you like, like if you're reading a book, do you have to have music on? Like, do you have to have like a secondary thing? I think I just, I don't, <laughs> the podcast is more Dave's thing. So uh, I, I, I mean, I, okay. like we, we, we had this conversation kind of recently where I'm just like, do we have, do we have to do the podcast? I mean, it's really good. <laughs> it, well, it is really good. And, and that's, you, you know, it's, it's no, I'm mostly, talking to Dave. It's, Dave, it's really good. <laughs> yeah. no. Oh, thanks man. Appreciate it. <laughs> He does. But we kind of like we have to like be involved with it together. Yeah. And it's not my favorite thing. I mean, it's fine. But but okay, <laughs> well, uh, getting to this the point that like we've spent <laughs> you know the last fifteen years where Dave is like supporting the thing that I love, yeah. like supporting. <laughs> And so this is my opportunity to to support the thing that he loves. And so yeah, where does kind like, of just where like, does it where outside of your skill set comfort uh, area does it put you, JJ? Ah, uh, okay. I hate talking on the phone. Uh, is that she's real? She's like she's an introvert. Well, yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm like a super introvert. Okay. And and the thing is like that. There are, there are episodes, like there are interviews where I feel like very connected to whoever we're talking to and I feel part of the conversation, but it's the interviews where I don't feel that, that it's just like really, yeah. um, it's the, it's the introvert, it's the introvert tonight mirrors. Like this is a conversation that I have to be having. I have yeah. to be leading. I have to ask the right yeah. questions and provide all the energy. <laughs> <laughs> that's the nightmare scenario. yeah yes well i mean i think the thing is too that like what we've learned in interviewing people is sometimes they just need to say all the things that they think they need to say yeah so that they can finally get around to having an actual conversation with us that's right um and so that takes it, it takes time for them to just sort of like say all of the things that they thought we wanted them to say before we actually get around to yes. actually like digging in. Yeah. I, I don't remember where I heard it from, but I, someone was telling me that Ira Glass, one of his philosophies 
is when he um, when he interviews someone, he puts a microphone on them on their body so they're not holding one or they don't have one in front of their face so they don't see it. Mm-hmm. See, so mics their body mm-hmm. so it's just on them somewhere, and then for a moment they know they're mm-hmm. they are mic'd, but it, but it takes less time for them to forget the recording process mm-hmm. to just start mm-hmm. talking. And, and that's part of the deal. I mean, if you listen to his interviews, you're like, these are not, because a lot of the folks he talks to are people who don't do interviews. Um, right. And so he's like, to get people, to, to put people in the position to just talk, like you're just saying, to get past the answering questions point to like actually having a conversation about what we're having a conversation about, that like not having microphones or, or like limiting the, like the technological piece of it helps get people that place. I thought that was fascinating and insightful because I, I feel the same thing. It's like the first 10, 12 minutes of some interviews is like, okay, yep, there's that answer. Saw mm-hmm. that one coming. Oh, and here's this one. Saw that one mm-hmm. coming too. How about this part? Mm-hmm. Like, oh, now we're there somewhere. It's, yeah, but it takes a minute. Yeah, I mean, it reminds me like I used to photograph weddings and it was almost always like after the camera came down that like everyone relaxed and it was like, like I, I I should have kept it to my face just a little bit longer, you know, but uh, like to, to be able to make the microphone turn invisible is, is really helpful. (laughs) Yeah. And there's a bit of a parallel there too, in terms of like, you know, part of what you've done for years, JJ, is you've been capturing actual life moments and then making them into, um, you know, sellable, sendable, like making an artifact out of life moments. And there is that, like, like the, the mechanism of the thing can steal the life out of it. Like it's, it can, it's sort of the, that old, you know, Native American myth about like, they don't like having their pictures taken because, you know, it steals their soul. There really is something about <laughs> the technology or the, or like the, the, yeah, the, like the mechanism and the machinery actually stealing the soul out of a moment. But that's also the work hmm. that makes art art is how do you do this? Take this moment, yeah make it somehow replicable and pass onable without it, without killing it and feel like, Oh, it's just sentiment. It's a freaking Hallmark card. Although Hallmark cards actually do a pretty good job of doing this, <laughs> doing the job anyway. So maybe <laughs> I shouldn't crap on Hallmark. <laughs> yeah i think um the other part that's difficult for me about the format of podcasting is it takes me a really long time to process things and hmm. i think that's why i love songwriting because i could take however long i want hmm. use as few words as i want to kind of consolidate everything that i'm thinking and feeling and so in podcast like you kind of just have to respond in the moment and that's that's just I mean I can do it but it's not like really something that I'm great at yeah Um, I think I think she's downplaying herself too I would also think yeah like what the um the method that I've come up with is that like I speak to our guests before the interview and I kind of have an idea where the conversation is going and JJ is like playing the role of audience member. Hmm. And so like, um, she's the one most of the time who's like laughing at the jokes <laughs> and like gasping at the right moments <laughs> and like all of the, the things like she's being the, the empath. Yes. Um, and then I get to ask the questions most of the time. And then normally 
this happens like nine times out of 10 is like at the end of the interview, JJ's the one who comes up with like an amazing kind of summarization where she's like pulling from earlier moments in the conversation. And it's like, Mm. that's why she's there is like, she's being herself. Um, (laughs) Which is actually, that's, well, that's, and I think you and I agree here, Dan, that's part of like, one of the things that makes a conversation harder is if you don't have a good listener. Right. It's like, right. So if it's going to be a conversation and you know, your, your podcast format, similar to mine to some degree, it it is a little bit more conversation. It's not just talk show showy. There's a, there's an interaction there. And if you don't have a listener, if there's no listening ear on (laughs) both sides of it, it's really rough and gets, it's sort of, um, I don't know. Did you ever, did, did you ever have the opportunity to go to Calvin and play and, and do anything with Ken Hefner at Calvin college? No. No. Hefner would do this thing before, usually before some of his bigger shows. So he would have, um, I mean, you know, hyper Christian campus for the most part. Um, but he would have like Lenny Kravitz or he had Bob mm. Dylan. He had Emily Harris there. Like, and I'd seen several artists there and, uh, I was there for, uh, was, um, same weekend. It was Andrew Bird, which was amazing. And Lupe Fiasco. Mm-hmm. the hip hop artist. And mm-hmm. both times Ken would walk out on stage and I'd never seen anyone do this before. He would say same little speech. He would say, you know, you, you showed up here and you paid your, you paid your money and you're expecting as you should, that the artist, you know, who's about to you know, be on the stage has brought their a game that they're going to do the best, bring the best of themselves that, as they possibly can for the next hour and a half, two hours, whatever it is. He said, now as a, as a, he said, but my responsibility to them is that is to ask you as an audience to have brought your A game. Are you are you in a position to listen, mm-hmm. to interact, and to respond? And I'd never seen anyone challenge an audience like that to say, be a mm. good audience. Because he said the difference <laughs> between a great show and an okay show is about the audience. That an artist can bring oh, man. the best they can possibly bring. And if the audience is yeah. not prepared to listen, to interact, to receive, to respond it didn't matter. And so the, the, the role of the empath in conversation podcast or in shows, uh, whatever interaction it is like the role of the empath actually is key. Can you listen and respond and be in the moment that makes all the difference? Yeah. Well, when you're both doing that, you're both inside your bodies, like you're both being present. Right. Yeah. Um, like one of my all time favorite concerts, we've ever gone to was at the Ryman auditorium, like downtown Nashville, beautiful old kind of church building turned music venue. And we went and saw Ben Rector. Uh, and he was coming off of like his big hit, uh, brand, brand new was, was the, uh, was the song that he had go top 40. Right. And what made it such an amazing show for me was how like like his audience at that time was like all of these college girls <laughs> so it was like <laughs> me and a couple of, of boyfriends and all of these college girls but like they knew every word and were singing along like it was the kind of thing where he could yes. step back from the microphone and they would take over you know yep um yeah and pretty much every single song yeah and it was just magic like mm. I, I had, I, I've been, I mean, as you can imagine, I've been to a lot of shows Yes. and I, 
had not experienced something like that ever. Like it was really special. A great audience makes a big difference, and a lot of what, and a lot of the the interview podcast world. I think it's actually this is this is not a great parallel, but it's part of what makes. Um, oh, I'm gonna play, not Jimmy Kimmel, the other Jimmy. Well, who's the other late night Jimmy? Why am I Fallon? <laughs> right, it's it's actually Fallon. what makes him work uh, as a host is because he's actually emotionally with his guests. Mm-hmm. More so than most folks. Like, he's not great at questions. Like, he's good at the comedy. But Mm -hmm. in terms of, like, actual guest interaction, he's not a great question asker. He's not a great interviewer. Like, you know, he had Donald Trump on for 20 minutes, and it was like you got no actual questions (laughs) out of the person who's about to run things, you know, for America for a while. But, like, he's so present with his guests. It's actually the thing that makes it work. Hmm. Um, yeah. So you're you are in your studio space in what town are you actually in right now? We're in Franklin, and this is not our studio space. This is just this is my office, and it, it oh. actually has pretty bad audio. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, um, it sounds great to me. But the okay, okay. Uh, our our home studio is actually our closet. <laughs> Downstairs. If I have to track a vocal or something, I'll go into the closet and I'll pin the lyrics to my hanging clothes. Oh my gosh! <laughs> yeah, and then and then sing down the vocal. Um, Thanks, 2020. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but I, uh, I thought we were gonna be uh, seeing each other, so I figured well, like this would be a better space to to see each other. But yeah, anyway. Well, we could have been in our closet. Yeah, I could have. I could have been in your closet. What it could have, shoulda. Um. Tell me about like you've been in you've been in Nashville Franklin for how long now? Six years. Is it really well, been six years? This is our second round in Tennessee. Well, it's six and a half years, it, and this is the second time yeah. that we've lived in Tennessee. Yeah. Okay, that's so what like, I'm remembering. What? So there was a yeah. break in there somewhere. Where'd you leave to? Uh, we went back to Phoenix. So we we met in California in college, got married, moved to Phoenix where Dave grew up and where his family was. And so they could be kind of our support base as we were trying to play music full time. Right. And we lived there for two and a half years. Right. And then moved to East Nashville for three and a half years. That's it. And then we moved back to Phoenix for four and a half years. And then now we've been back in Tennessee. Six and a half years. <laughs> okay. Yeah, That's what I was like, you said six and a half years ago. It place. feels like it was forever ago. Cause if I, th- I don't know if you remember this, we, the three of us hung out in a park. Oh, I remember. In Pleasant Hill, which <laughs> it was, was actually like, the four of us. It, your wife was there. I don't think she was. Well, that, that was a long time ago. I think well, she anyway, was. You, well, but we hang out, hung out with them in California. Yeah. Right, yeah, like, that's what he's saying. A long time ago. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. she was no, there. Maybe it wasn't four of us. Yeah, but and part I, of what we were what talking I about was about it. Yeah, <laughs> part of what we were talking about was whether or not you were going to move. And that's right. there was yes. like a whole thing there about like we feel home where we are, we feel cared for where we are, but we also have these kind of the desire to be somewhere where like it's more work oriented and the relationships and the connections, and it was just like, hey, you know, by what metric do we make these decisions and um, so can you talk for a couple of minutes, both of you about, uh, the sense, like a sense of home and belonging and, and place that a lot of what you do artistically, a lot of what you, a lot of what you write about JJ, a lot of like, like lyrically, whether it's about, you know, the relationship between 
kids and parents or the relationship between like people and other people really does have this like orientation of home and place and belonging. And um, can you talk about like, you know, geographically being in Franklin in relationship to Nashville, having headed back to Phoenix, leaving Phoenix to begin with, uh, talk about your sense of home. Like, do you feel home here? Does California still feel like home? Does Phoenix feel like home? When you think of home, like where is home? Like in your heart, in your body, where do you feel like you belong? I think right here, where we are right now, feels like home hmm. to me. Um, I feel so settled here. And I don't know if it has to do with the age of my children or how old I am, hmm. where I am in my career. But I just, I love where we are and I feel so grateful hmm. and it's so interesting that you brought up um, like the idea that I write about a sense of home and place and belonging because I feel like it's only been kind of in the past like five years or so where hmm. I've really settled in to my voice as a writer like who my hmm. audience is what what I want to communicate to them um, and it is that that feeling of being present, finding joy where you are. And it's so interesting that, that, that the music kind of correlates to what I'm actually feeling yes. in this season of my life. Yeah. Um, go ahead, Dave. Well, um, I feel like uh, I'm, tr I'm trying to just do the math real quick. Like we've been playing music together, if you count our time in college like for 20 years now wow um <laughs> and like we were just doing the math and and realizing that our children are closer to the age that we were when we were married than we are to the age that we were when we were married you know like it's like we've kind of officially moved into midlife um and hmm. i feel like what we've established in this phase in our lives is that we no longer need to try to be impressive anymore. Hmm. It's like we're way more interested in just sharing who we are yeah. and that's enough as opposed to like, look at this note I can hit or look at this fancy chord I can play or what my clothes look like or what, whatever the thing is. And like, and so what that means is when we approach songwriting or time in the studio or any other form of collaboration it makes it leaves room for our collaborators hmm. to bring themselves into the the experience hmm. and like the way that i kind of look at it most of the time is improv and the way that like the rules of improv is you always say yes and then you say and and you add your thing. Yeah. Um, and I feel like we spent a lot of our 20s and 30s like trying to steer the ship and mm. saying no a lot. Um, and I, I find like a lot of irony in the fact that like when we kind of let go of control and allowed our other collaborators to kind of shine through That's is good. actually when we found ourselves. <laughs> Yeah. It's when the song started to get really good. 
Yeah, it was, and to some degree, there's a little, there's a little bit of like it, it's, it, it's intuitive, right? There's not like a metric for that. There's not like a. Like we, you're saying the word math when you're talking about the actual years, but in terms of recognizing that in your own self, there isn't like there isn't like a metric. You just feel that. Yes, like it's, yeah. like a, like a song hits, whether it's in your head or actually, you know, you actually release it in the world, and it feels different. Um, when you listen to older work. Do you recognize yourself or does it feel like, <laughs> does it feel like I am, and not even like there would be like a full dissociation where like, I don't know who that person is. What's wrong yeah. with her? Who hurt her? Yeah. But more like, um, do you, do you have a sense of like, that's who I used to be and here I am now? Or does it feel like, like progression and like, this was a part of me and then there's more of me? Like, do you recognize yourself? Does it feel like a smaller version? Does it feel like an older version, a younger version? Like, what's it like to to have a, a more of a sense that like this is what it feels like to be more completely us, more completely me in music? And here's stuff that I was doing before I felt this. What's that experience yeah, like yeah. from where you are now? Oh, it's so funny that you'd ask that question because just a few days ago we watched my senior recital from college. Oh, wow. My my dad was like. You know, it was like Thanksgiving and nobody could be around. And so he was going through old videotapes and like and emailing them. To yeah. Us. Like he, he somehow had like digital files. And so he sent JJ's college senior recital video to us. What did you play and sing? Yeah. What was the thing? Oh. And where is it on I mean, YouTube? It was like. <laughs> <laughs> Not on YouTube. Um, but yeah, it was like all over the place. I mean, like, so we sang, I had just started writing songs at, like maybe like two years earlier. So Dave and I played a couple original songs. Hmm. I played a couple of like classical piano pieces. I sang like an opera song with my instructor. Uh, it, it was uh, just old show tunes, yeah, like all, all over the board. Yeah. And then, um, and then we closed the show uh, Dave and I did. Um, we sang "Anything You Can Do, I Can Do Better" oh, wow. from "Annie Get Your Gun." Yes. Um, and so it was like it's super fun, and it, like there was even watching it now, there was obvious chemistry between mm. the two of us on stage. Mm. Um, That's really cool. But it, it was also this like I feel kind of embarrassed for myself. <laughs> I think mostly during like the original songs where, you know, some were stronger than others, but it was just a lot of angst, like a lot of like, I'm so lonely. Where's my place in the world? Yes. And I had a lot, a lot of like Alanis Morissette influence going on at the time. And, oh yeah. Didn't, um, didn't we all though? I mean, let's just, let's just, oh. I mean, I feel like a lot, I feel like the <laughs> children of the nineties, we wouldn't be, we would not be the people we are were it not for Alanis Morissette. I think that's, I think that's true of everyone who's come in contact or been near her at all. Period. I think it's generally true. She did play God in that, in the movie and in the, uh, in the, uh, in the Kevin Smith movie. So there's, there is a role there she plays culturally. Wow. I mean, that, that's saying something. Oh, I know, that's significant. Um, but it, it, I'm like, you know, I'm reaching this point in my life. I just turned 40 this year. And so I'm trying to not just look back to the person I, I was and feel a sense of 
embarrassment or pity, Hmm. but to also just give myself grace and say like, I mean, I had, that's who I had to be at that time. Like I didn't know what I know now. Like that was a part of the process and Hmm. that's fine. Like I, I can't expect my 20 year old self to act like my 40 year old self. And so there's kind of like, I feel like, uh, God's given me more compassion Mm. for the person who I used to be. What a gift it is in that way. And this is, I mean, we'll just have to be okay with tooting our own horn here, but what a gift it is to have like the gift of the professional artist to themselves is to, is to at least try to vulnerably put yourself in the world which like challenges me, challenges us to do, like I have to know something. I have to feel like I know something to have some kind of confidence to put this out there. So I have to say this is who I am in some way, shape or form. And then to have the actual public record of it, which is like, it's one thing to look back in a journal (laughs) and be like, hey, this is who I was, you know, when I was you know, 21 or whatever. And I was thinking about these things in my career, et cetera. And and romance and all that kind of stuff. But it's a completely different thing. But like, here's all this stuff I said out loud in mm-hmm. public with full confidence that I was right. And, mm-hmm. uh, or that I knew, or this is what I felt. And, and to have this like public record to look back on and that we shared it with folks who remember it. Uh, <laughs> like, like what a trip, like what a, like what a process of personal becoming it is to be a, like a professional artist and to constantly put your stuff in the world and to be remembered even as you remember yourself and have folks who know you because you and I both know, like there are folks who are like, Oh yeah, that first record. And you're like, God, do have, can we talk about the new one? I mean, Mm -hmm. really? like I'm glad Mm -hmm. you like the first one, but I'm not that person anymore. But like they associate you with that person. I mean, what a trip. And, but also like what a gift that you get to and have to kind of receive and have mercy and grace for the whole of your life in every stage. hard sometimes. I mean, I think though, uh, I think it's, I mean, it, uh, kind of echoing what you were saying, it's a gift to be able to see the, like the growth. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, like both personally and artistically and, um, uh, Malcolm Gladwell had an article, um, I think it was in the New Yorker that was that was talking about uh, the difference between a genius and a master, hmm. and how like the genius is given like this incredible like gift at an early age where they kind of like they've got it and they sort of show it off to the world and I, I like. I think about someone like Billie Eilish or like young Taylor Swift or something like that. Like yes. somebody who's actually like, like, like both of them are like, or when, when their career started, I mean, they were like years and years younger than we were. And like their songwriting is probably better than ours is now. <laughs> yeah. they're remarkable. I mean, it's, it's just like, yeah. Um, but then the, the, uh, the master, just gets to slowly incrementally mm. improve. Hmm. Um, and I feel like that has been sort of 
the story of of JJ's career and not to say not to say that like that we've arrived by by any means but it's like yeah it's like to make the the songs that we write next year better than the songs we wrote this year you know like to just keep that craft improving um let's talk for talk about you know in terms of like public record and being public persons and what have you um you I I'll just try and say like you both of you I mean as as a collective you do a, I think a good job of um being private persons as well and that might have some to do with JJ's more um introverted orientation but you but it's not like you can have a a, a career in the arts without spending some time online Facebook Twitter Instagram um can you talk about the your journey there um I kind of want to ask two questions. One is, um, especially in the last, you know, what, eight or nine months, you know, going on 10 months here, talk about your, like your experience of, of life online and relationships online. Um, one with your audience, like, again, there's a gift here to some degree that that Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, you have access to, the people who care about you and care about you professionally, they also have access to you, which sometimes isn't great. Um, but like, talk about your, yeah, that experience for you. Do you, cons- do you think of your online relationships as an extension of your social, emotional life? Is that part of your, is that, are they part of your tribe in the same way that your neighbors are, or is it totally different? And then, you know, like, are, where do you have hard lines if you do in terms of like this gets shared publicly, this doesn't like our kids. We don't do this with our kids online. We don't do pictures like so is is the online world for you a play? Is it an extension of your actual real life or whatever? Does it feel like an extension of your social emotional life and where there are hard lines or boundaries for you? Where are they and why? Oh, yeah, that's that's a big question. Um, I have lots of thoughts about this. Um, I think, so we have two daughters. Um, they are almost 12. Um, she's turning 12, uh, in a couple days and, and then a nine year old. And when they were babies and toddlers, I just like shared photos of them all the time. This is what they're doing. This is what they said. The cutest thing ever. But it's, it's been interesting because, like, as they've gotten older, that has had to shift. Hmm. Um, and so now I really want to, like, respect their privacy. And especially our younger daughter, like, I will ask her, can I post this uh, online? Hmm. And, and sometimes, well, most of the time, she'll say no. And I'll say, okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, and our older daughter is just kind of all about it. She's like, yeah, she's kind of our little performer outgoing. Um, and so I want to, like, I want to really respect, um, that they're, they're their own people. So I don't want to like, it's funny because I know as somebody who uses social media that, posting about them like will get a lot of engagement Mm -hmm. and so keeping that in mind like i don't want to exploit them for that purpose yeah um but i also know that most of the people who follow me online are moms and and so like mothering issues are important to them and encouraging to them 
Um, and so there, there has been like this, like this little shift over the years of like, I don't want to post anything about my children like now without their permission. I don't want to post anything where they could find like three years from now and go like, why did you share that about me? Yes. Um, and like, but I also, I know that because I have a certain amount of people following me on social media, I, I know that I have the opportunity to be a voice of encouragement, um, hmm. in their lives. And, yeah. and especially cause you know, like people can go on social media and they end up feeling worse about themselves and about their lives, uh, after scrolling. And so my goal is to, um, to be, to be that voice of hope for them, of encouragement, of like a gentle reminder, like you are, you're doing a great job (laughs) and like, it's okay to take a deep breath and Mm -hmm. enjoy the moment you're in and stop putting so much pressure on yourself. And, and so like, but it, it's also, it could be a great marketing tool. And so Mm -hmm. like, for me, it's kind of this battle of like reminding myself that, uh, that social media is an opportunity for me to, to give a gift to the people who are following me instead of like looking at it as a tool to promote myself and like trying to figure out, okay, what can they give me and what can I get out of it? Yes. Um, and so when I'm able to have that perspective of, uh, okay, this is, this is my act of service to you. So then I feel like I really enjoy it. <laughs> um, and it doesn't feel like it's taking over my life. Uh, so, but it's, it's, it's super hard. Like I I have to keep reminding myself of that. If you've been around the podcast for any amount of time, you know that I ask almost all my guests about their experience of life online. Part of why I do that is because I'm in a lot of conversations about the impact that online life has on our happiness. We look around at people in our similar stations of life and wonder why we are not there. And that can cause a bit of dysmorphia a sense of displacement from the life we're actually living. And maybe you're like a lot of folks who are struggling with that, or maybe you're just facing depression, or you're stressed, you're anxious. Maybe you got some trauma you don't know what to do with. BetterHelp is actually available right now to you, and it is more affordable than offline counseling. In fact, if you jump right now to betterhelp.com slash at C, they'll give you 10% off your first month just because I sent you. That's not a ploy. That's them and me taking your mental health seriously. Jump to betterhelp.com slash Atsy. In theory, best case scenario, all there is is this actual authentic whole life sharing of this is who I am in art. This is who I am in my life. These are my struggles as a mom and my victories as a mom. And that that connection is the thing that actually ties people tribally to you so that they continue to say, oh my gosh, I trust her to talk about, to sing about life because I know her as a person. Like that's the best case scenario. Somehow the, the, the platforms or at least the way we approach the platforms complicates that. And I have not quite sussed that out about how that works and why that is. Because when you talk about like, you know, where where we'd be willing to share, what we're willing to share with our, you know, about our kids, but that's true offline too. 
and or, or when we say like there are places like if you engage with the world in a certain way i was talking to nick lapara about this this morning is mm. um i stopped coming to nashville I, I used to be in nashville like once or twice a year at least and i just stopped because every time i left town <laughs> i would feel like a piece of crap i was like i'm a worse mm. artist i'm a lesser person i'm not creative i'll never get there mm. like there were places like i just i couldn't go because i would feel trashed mm. so it's like yeah that's true of facebook but it's also true of the bar scene and like yeah it's true of twitter but it's also true of church where it's like twitter's like highly politicized i'm like yeah but so is white western evangelicalism so like, where yeah. can you go and feel safe so i'm tr- like yeah. part of why i asked the question because i don't really know yet and i'm trying and i want to you're so thoughtful in the way you approach uh relationship engagement and storytelling and spe- and name- you just said it out loud you're talking about like you you do have an aversion to um and it's not even something you have to say out loud. It's just in your posture. You do have an aversion to novelizing or minimizing yourself for the sake of um, characterizing yourself. That's why you have you have an aversion to caricaturizing yourself for the purpose of being more sellable. Like you've never done it, um, and you've been really expressed uh, in in like this is who I actually am. This is my. It was like four or five days ago or maybe four or five posts ago, there was this whole post about this is who I am in reality. This is me without makeup. Here I am on this day. Like you push that. <laughs> and it's beautiful because it's like, and and there's a part of it. It's like there's, maybe it's more necessary online, but it's maybe not more necessary online. Uh, so I, I, I'm, I ask questions to, to folks like you about the difference between online relationships and non-online relationships because I just don't know if we're wise enough yet to the difference to say like yeah. this this platform or this thing is is negative and so we need to navigate it. Facebook is 16 years old. Like of course we don't know what the hell we're doing. Yeah. So like <laughs> your thoughtful engagement online is I think really helpful and, and um and even what you just said I think is is, is somewhat revealing. I like you. Yeah. <laughs> I uh I feel like a lot of the complication is that people bring different expectations to each of the platforms. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so like when I approach Instagram or Twitter or Facebook, I might be looking for a joke or I might be looking for a Hallmark card or mm-hmm. I might be looking for, uh, I don't know, a TED talk or something like that while someone else might be looking for a compliment yes. or for someone who agrees with their political stance or a chance to put someone down because they were just put down offline or whatever, you know? Um, and, and I feel like there was, uh, especially like early in the, uh, the social media scene, there there were kind of like these segregated uses to each of these different sites mm-hmm. where it was like okay like uh, before youtube there was like a site called ebombs world and and it was just <laughs> I totally stupid world. right yeah oh and it was just God. like stupid videos it was like watch a guy light his fart on fire or whatever it super right? was that's so good and and like when youtube when youtube started that was what it was becoming it was just yeah. like find the funny thing like charlie bit me star wars kid whatever yes 
But like the longer that these things have existed, the more they've tried to integrate all of these other components in it. And as a result, the the complexity and complication has just like exponentially increased. Yes. And so with that comes like a greater exposure to a larger audience. But it mm-hmm. also has brought uh, conspiracy theories. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and uh, so uh, JJ spends like very little time on Twitter and mm-hmm. I think it's really good for yeah. her psyche. Yes. Um, like I, um, I hop on there from time to time on her account and just like, like a couple of things. <laughs> um, but like her primary engagement is on Instagram. Instagram. Yeah. And I think Instagram out of every, all of the platforms, it still has a simplicity to it. Yep. Um, that allows it to be just a little bit more pure. It's mm. sort of like, here's here's a beautiful dining room or like, this is a somebody's face, right? Um, and it, it, it lends itself a little bit less to uh, be, being a powder keg. Mm. Um, yeah. But I, I do think it, like JJ's introversion in general means that she has a couple of, close safe relationships like mm. uh Brene Brown has um a, uh, a a practice of carrying a little heart around with her in her purse mm-hmm. and on that heart are the names of the people that matter in her life mm. and like like whose voices matter yeah yeah and, and and so like anyone whose name is not on that heart doesn't get to count quite as much you That's know yeah um and I feel like that is sort of the approach that we need to take to social media most of the time. <laughs> yep, I agree. I think, uh, like, uh, one of the temptations in terms of, like, online life versus real life is if somebody does something mean to me or if I'm feeling left out of something in my real life, there's such a temptation to go on the line. And I know that if I talk about that, I could get a hundred comments saying like, Oh, we love you. Like right. who would, they were mean, you know, you could like get <laughs> right. the affirmation that you wish that you had. Yep. And, and so I need to like catch myself sometimes. Like if I'm feeling disappointed or frustrated, like, you know, um, those, comments online can be like a drug you yeah, know very much so uh, not solving the problem but but making the pain a little bit less in the moment um but like it's so it's so vital and good and refreshing to have like real life people who you know support what we what we do but who aren't necessarily like fans Mm-hmm. Like it, I mean, it's kind of hard to explain the difference, but well, I think what you want is people who can tell you who you are and like, and remind you of that rather than, um, than just like stroking your ego. Yeah. Yeah. Like, who you know who I actually am yes. rather than like the person. Persona of JJ Heller. I mean, not that I'm like two completely different people, but no, but that's the trick, well, right? Is regard is depending on the level of engagement. Um, 
you it's not it doesn't you don't you don't even have to do it so it, it, like you don't have to even have to do it to yourself if you're in a room of 100 people and I, I coach pastors in this all the time like you know as much as especially like pastors of churches that are like 100 to 250 people or like 50 to 75 people it's like you're gonna think in your head that these that everyone in the room sees you as a whole person they don't there are few people who will see you as a whole person and the overwhelming majority just because but it's just cultural anthropological nature. They don't see you as whole. You're purposeful. You're useful. And that's fine because that's the degree of engagement you have with those people. But the larger that number is, the more and more people don't see you as whole. They see you as necessary or unnecessary. They see you as useful or not useful or as entertaining or not entertaining. You're, you are, to the, to the majority of people, vast majority of people, some kind of a caricature. And that's just necessary in order for us to have like multiple relationships over the course of dozens and hundreds and thousands. But like you just said, to have that core group of folks who are like, oh, no, no, no. Like, I, like I know what this person like looks like, sounds like, smells like, feels like when they are at their utter worst. Like that's where you like, then it makes it allowable. It's like, yeah, I don't, I don't need people online. I don't need people at the bar. I don't need people at my workplace to see me as a whole person because I have people who I know do. Like the, mm -hmm. the remedy to that is not to somehow fix Facebook so that people are kinder. No, the remedy to that is like, do you have people who are kind to you? Hmm. Like, do you have a small group of <laughs> folks who like, if you do put your political opinion on the table, won't rip your freaking throat out for it? Like <laughs> the remedy is to have that group of people. I mean, the, the, again, the example of Jesus one more time, like, Homie had 12 folks, kind of 11. Really, it was two. Like, it's, you know, it's like, <laughs> you know it, it's like there were thousands of people following brother around, but like he had 12-ish real friends, one of whom legitimately sold him out for money. A couple of the other ones yeah. pretended they didn't know who he was for a minute. Like, But like he had like a really, really small group of folks. And I forget that all the time because the push is have more friends. The push is have greater wider reach to have a you know you know a larger impact and it's like the spreading out constantly which is only healthy long term if i have a nucleus where i am yeah. vulnerable and known and received and whole yeah i remember listening to an interview i think it was with tony hale like several years ago and he was talking about fame and how it's so desirable for humans, because we have this idea that the more people who know us, the better it will feel. Yes. But the problem is like, they all know us, but we don't know them. Mm -hmm. And so there's this disconnect. There's no actual relationship there. Mm. And then the complication with fame, he was talking about, you know, like the more famous you get, the more tempting it is when you, when you have been a jerk to somebody who is in your real life, like to just like dismiss them and say, well, I have 2 million people who think I'm amazing. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then you desert the actual real relationships in your real life because it's just so tempting to, to, you know, like get all that praise from people who think that they love you, but who don't actually know you. Yeah. And, uh, and there's this counselor in town who I'm sure you know of, Al Andrews, who mm -hmm. just talks about like the fact that the human heart was not made for fame. Mm. And and so it's like 
like, what do you do with that? Wow. <laughs> to drop that line in a town like Nashville. <laughs> I know. Yeah. The human yeah. heart is not designed for fame. He says in a town right. in which 80% of its populace is chasing fame. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, but my career, bro. What about my right. career? Yeah, it's really good. I think, though, like, I, uh, you know, a huge part of, um, of, I, I feel like in many ways we're kind of like in the second act of JJ's career. I, mm. Maybe we could say third. But it like there was kind of like a building and an establishing and a redefining, yes. um, and we're, we're kind of like after that redefinition, and there was a moment in her career where like her songs were on the radio and things were really great, and then songs weren't getting played on the radio. Yeah, um, and it was painful. yeah, it was like hmm. it it was really really uh, like frustrating and hmm. sad and angering like all of these uh emotions associated with this thing that we couldn't control yes and eventually we had to redefine like what what are we even doing this for that's good if s some gatekeeper has decided that they don't want that they have defined your music as undesirable yeah undesirable yeah. and and like and like and we don't feel that way right we yes we want to keep creating things and we feel like it's valuable still even if it doesn't fit in whatever the pigeonhole is that that gatekeeper is trying to fit stuff through yeah. and um so the the definition that we kind of came to is that there are people in this world Almost everyone in this world has a scared little kid inside of them who wants to be told things are going to be all right. You belong somewhere, right? You're not alone in this confusing experience. And we can write music and share social media posts and mm -hmm. like and express um, comfort to that scared kid and like and there are people who aren't in touch with that kid and there are people who are <laughs> yes that's really and good. and we're speaking to the people who are yeah um i want to turn a corner and kind of wrap things up here in a second i, I want to point one thing out before we, we do and i love like you just talked about this really fascinating nuance here because in a sense like no the human heart is not designed for for fame and i totally agree with that and at the same time, in in the in the career in the arts, I don't want to call it a game, but in the world in which like I'm making a career in the arts, it's actually more toxic in some ways when you have like that small group of and you call them gatekeepers, and you have that small group of gatekeepers who are saying this is valuable, this is not, this is valuable, this is not, this is valuable, this is not, mm -hmm. like to literally squash whole careers emotionally and sometimes financially, because you know a group of let's call it what it is like 12 to 30 people get to decide who gets, you know, what thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people get to hear or whatever. Um, mm -hmm. one of the gifts of, um, one of the gifts of Facebook, Twitter and Instagram is I, and it's the flip side of be like, well, you know, I'm chasing affirmation from all these people for who I am. 
Well, I think that might be unhealthy, but the other side of the coin to that is like, yeah, like I, I get that the publisher said that this book isn't sellable, but every time I post something on Twitter or on Facebook or on Instagram, all these people find it valuable for their lives. And so there is a, there is a kind of an affirmation. If I can be healthy and strong enough within my own self to not, to not tie mm -hmm. my identity success, to success, to say like, yeah, but when I put this online, when I make this video about being a mom and, and a song about motherhood, and, and maybe it would be a song that like <laughs> Christian radio would be like, we don't know where to put that in between these songs. Right. But there's this whole yeah. freaking world of, of people, dads and moms who are like, I'm so, I'm so thankful <laughs> that JJ put that song online and like to heck with the freaking uh, gatekeeper who would say that's not worthwhile. Like there is this upside to having access, direct access to thousands mm -hmm. of people is to say like, no, I know that my work is valuable because these are the folks I'm trying, whose lives I'm trying to put it in. And I know that the gatekeeper who doesn't want to sell it doesn't want to sell it, but these folks want it. And so this matters more. There is an upside to it. It's, and it, it, it makes it really difficult at times to navigate. Like it ends up being that internal thing. Like, am I solid enough within myself to not tie my identity to success, but also like recognize the value of my work in relationship to the people I'm trying to love and not to the folks who are just trying to sell it. What a gift mm -hmm. that can be too. Yeah. Um, yeah. So well, and, and go ahead. Like, keep, keep that mind and to keep that mindset of like, am I doing this because I want affirmation or am I, am I truly putting this information into the world because I want to serve this yes. audience and like just to, to give you some encouragement. I, I love, you're like one of my favorite people to follow on Instagram. <laughs> like I love the insight that you bring into the world. I love that your voice is in the world. I, That's really kind. I, it, it is a bright light in my yeah. life. So thank you. Uh, that means a ton. I, I honestly mean that. Thank you. That's really generous. In reverse, I was going to say this anyways. I, I'm glad that you've worked, you've done the work to stay because that's the, I mean, to, to have made the decision to, to dive in, get it, you know, neck deep in it, in the industry as an industry to then choose health and leave and get right and then come back and like all the ups and downs and radio and not radio and all the stuff that you've actually the, like the staying power you should be after all that work the you know a better artist which you are and the work you're doing is is more the word I, the word for me the, you know your work is just more poignant you've always been a strong songwriter your, your melodies always been melodies have always been memorable but the work as work is just more poignant than it ever has been and I'm glad you stayed. I'm glad that you've stayed together and, and been refined over the course of the last 20 years. 20 freaking years, guys. 20 years. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> it, you got 20. That's, that's, you got 20 years. It's all in Dave's beard. Uh, the toilet, <laughs> that's it all right. up there. That's but, so I'm is. glad you know, 20 years down the line, you've done the work to be who you are now. So here's what I, I want to play. Just a little bit of a game. It's not like a game game. 15 years from now, you just hit 40. So 55. If your best laid plans, podcast, music, um, videos, if your best laid plans work, if what you do bears fruit, because at some point, right, you refine your will a little bit 
and the risks you take and the plans you have are probably more effective because you've tried enough and failed enough and succeeded enough to know like this will probably work when and I won't do this because I know that it won't. If your best laid plans do play out over the next 10 to 15 years, what what's happening in your life? What what does your career look like in 15 years? Where are you? Do you move home geographically? Like what is life like for the Hellers 15 years from now if everything works the way you want it to? Gosh, I, like we are in this space right now of just extreme gratitude. Hmm. Um, like because of different, like <laughs> uh, God ordained, crazy, like miraculous, um, unforeseen successes have happened at, at like parts uh, along my career um we were in this place where we we get to make the music that we want to make yep we're like working on another fun side project right now that we haven't announced yet like we're making a podcast i, I think like we are in the middle of the good old days right now <laughs> uh, and i don't know you know what's what's coming next year or then or the year after but success for me would be to continue to make things that we want to make to mm. keep being creative and to say yes to projects that sound fun yes and to not have to feel the pressure of needing it to be like a breakout success but to just be able to create it hmm. because because of the joy that is in the creation process. I yeah, that. I mean, I want to follow up with that because, um, like, we had a kind of a, a pretty significant breakthrough about four years ago when we made um, JJ's first, like, full-length Christmas album. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and when we recorded it, we were just done with being cool. Well, trying to be cool. Uh, yeah, we, we, we never, never were. We, we watched JJ's we watched JJ's college recital, and we, we weren't even cool when when we had the potential. <laughs> we cool. had all the um, shot at being cool. You still you're still missing. You're still missing. The target right. was large. You're still off that. <laughs> the 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 homeschooler in me just kind of pushed me to the far side of the spectrum. Drag me down. <laughs> um, but like, but what happened when we made this Christmas record is like we. Uh, created orchestral arrangements. Mm -hmm. We uh, we had children's uh, like children's choir arrangements, and what we kind of set out to do was make a record that 50 years from now hmm. could still like hold its own, right? Yeah. And so like we've had this thing where we've been releasing singles, and and like that's fun, but we've also kind of uh, been creating other uh, orchestral material, lullaby material that um, that is for like mothers who are putting their children uh, uh, like down for bedtime or nap time yeah. or they're putting music on when they're on a, a road trip and, and they just need something to like provide some peace to them. Yeah. And the whole philosophy 
behind those albums is like when those children, when the children who are babies right now are adults and they are having babies, that they will pull out these records and play them for their children. Wow. And and so like that is the metric or uh it, it, yeah, I mean like that that's what we're measuring these songs by is yeah, like how can we make this stand the test of time as opposed to just like trying to win some popularity contest um because it's like it's serving a practical and spiritual function and it's like bonding uh mothers and children in like the most kind of like visceral way you you possibly could i love that um so yeah i mean like that's 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 a huge component for us well what you know i'll say you know richard Rohr's um book falling up where it is deeply formative for me. And part of what he does is this whole front half of life, back half of life thing. That's the first half that has to do with, and you said it earlier, this building and rebuilding and refining and the kind of coming to know myself to some degree. And then the whole second half of life ends up being about legacy. What am I leaving? Cause at some point I'm done. Like you're just more conscious of the end of everything. My career will be over. I'm going to die. Everything comes in the con. Yeah, everything turns towards what am I leaving behind, and what do I leave for other people? How do I make this about other folks? Because I'm done trying to make it about me. I'm really thankful for the the, the and I think that's what I mean by poignant. And and there are several points in this conversation which it's been really clear that there is a there's a soul level consciousness in you as artists. Um, that that's what you've that's what you are more capable of and more conscious that you are doing now that like you've never been this like heavy branded just go out there bust your ass sell stuff person uh it's never been that it's been there's been a a gentleness and uh and an optimism and a patience uh in what you're doing and i think that's allowed for your second half to to be what it is turning out to be now which is like so many of the people who are paying attention to you need to know that it's not about them and that it's okay to not be about them and that it, it can, in fact, be about their kids and about their neighbors because they're 43-year-old moms who have 10-year-old kids and didn't expect to be that place in life. And they're like, I don't have time for mm-hmm. myself. And your stuff gets to reach into that life and say, like, yeah, but that 10-year-old kid, you'll have an imprint on his life for the whole of eternity. So the way you have, you know, not just in general passed yourself on, but have really turned this corner and like begun this legacy part of your, of your career as, as, a, as artists together, including the podcast, which I think is good. Uh, I just, I think it's, um, I think it's honorable. I think it's admirable. And I think only folks who've stuck it out as long as you have, and as wisely as you have get to do that kind of work. And so I'm thankful you're in the world doing what you're doing. Because there aren't that many people doing what you're doing as well as you're doing it. So uh, that is a, a, I'm thankful for you. And so thanks for making some time uh, for me today. In the park near my house is a series of trails that intersect a small creek in a few spots. And in the winter, that creek rises and it's almost impossible to cross at one location. So a few years ago, someone built a bridge over that spot. They saw a problem and they created a solution in order to address it. 
Then a week or so later, someone else tore it down. And then in response, the original builder took some of the broken pieces from the first bridge and used them to assemble a new bridge. And I think that's actually how life works and moves forward, which is why I wrote that story into my next book entitled, It Is What You Make Of It. 15 stories that push back against the kind of it is what it is thinking that keeps us from entering into the world around us and living fully. The book comes out on June 1st. You can pre-order it now. I hope you do. And thank you for listening to this episode of the Etsy podcast. If you want to follow up with JJ Heller, you can visit her at jjheller2ls.com. If you'd like to help this podcast continue to do the work that this podcast is doing, which is to say, if you'd like to help me continue to do the work I'm doing here with the Etsy podcast, jump to patreon.com backslash Justin McRoberts and join the team of people who are making this thing go. Until next time.